You're listening to Grow and Tell with Estelle May. She's a no-nonsense, hard-hitting, tell-you-like-it-is kind of host. Because you know those overwhelming things we avoid in life? Turns out they're not so scary once you break them down. Whether it's effectively managing your career, being vulnerable in your relationships, or working on your financial literacy, she believes the best version of ourselves involves being brave and well-informed. Come join her and find the courage to land that job, pay off that debt, forgive that friend, and fall in love with yourself. If you're looking to laugh, learn, and grow together, you're in the right place. So put on your big girl pants and let's figure this out together. Here's your host, Estelle May. I am so excited to have Dr. Balsteri here today. She's a sex therapist, and this is the first time I've ever spoken to sex therapists. And I have so many questions that I know that all of you are going to be able to relate to. And so just to get started, how did you get into becoming a sex therapist and what inspired you to go into that field? Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here and I've been following you a little bit on Instagram and really love what you're putting out there. So thank you again. Thank you. Yeah. Well, my, my path to becoming a sex therapist was part intentional and mostly unintentional. Okay. So my... My career in psychology is a second career. I used to be in the world of insurance. I was an insurance broker for many years. Mm-hmm. And then I made the transition into psychology. And uh, really, my focus, my focus was in forensic psychology. I spent a lot of time working in the prison systems, doing mm. evaluations and treatment with high-risk sex offenders and high-risk non-sexual violent offenders. And really in doing that work, I started to understand so many things about human behavior that I I just hadn't had a vocabulary for before. Mm -hmm. So what I started noticing was the ways in which trauma really dysregulated people's nervous systems and compelled their behavioral choices, Mm -hmm. also shaped the way that they see the world, saw themselves, viewed their autonomy, and really how that kind of related to their survival and their relational needs. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in doing a lot of work with sex offenders was the many different, the many different roles that sexuality played in their lives and how their relationship to sexuality, theirs or other people's really spoke volumes about how they saw their own sense of internal governance, um, internal security. And it got me really curious to think about the role that sexuality plays in people's lives in a much bigger spectrum. So after I stopped working in the prison systems, I started really focusing more on understanding trauma, which has always been, I think, my primary focus as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to understand the way trauma impacts sexuality in, in very different ways other than sex offending. So I started looking at the ways in which people became either compulsive or restrictive with their sexual behavior and their thoughts about it. I started looking at the way people related in in a sense of, did they feel empowered? Did they feel safe? Did they feel secure? Did they feel expressive, creative, or did they feel shamed by their relationship to sexuality? And as I started looking at these nuanced layers of sexuality more deeply, I really started realizing the human relationship to sexuality is so complex 
you know, we, we tend to be pretty reductionistic when we think about it as a culture. You know, it's sort of slap hazard on the, on the TV or we watch a few minutes of porn or we have an experience on the weekend, but people don't understand the long reaching tentacles that sexuality can leave in their lives, in every domain of their life. So I, I just started seeing this as a, a much more necessary area of psychological exploration and it's taken me down a path of really understanding the way that people relate to each other and having a whole different context for relational needs and how sex becomes a playground for people to act that out. I love that, especially that it's not just that you've kind of gone down this path that's not just sexual trauma, but mm -hmm. how all kinds of trauma yes. can affect that. Because I think sometimes we just assume that it would have to be sexually related, but it could be any kind of trauma. Right. In your life that tentacles. I like that too. It's, it's a good visual to think about the things that affect you long term. So the first question that I had was actually from someone who I had let her know that I was going to interview a sex therapist. Okay. And she said, you know, I, I always have these to-do lists. I have family. I have just so many things going on. But by the time I get home, I just don't have the energy Mm -hmm. mentally, you know, spiritually, whatever, sexually, mm -hmm. to even think about having right. sex. So how do mm -hmm. I get out of this headspace? Yeah. So what were your thoughts on that? This is a really common question, a common problem that I hear when I'm working with people, men and women um, and non-binary folks, but especially women talk about this as being a, a primary impediment to their sexual satisfaction. I think women tend to put a lot on their plates and Biologically, neurobiologically, our brains are more hardwired for multitasking. You know, the male brain is wired a little bit differently. They, they tend to be more singularly focused, not always, of course. These are broad generalizations. But for the most part, women tend to do a lot, have a lot going on at, at the same time. And it is much more complicated and complex for them to sort of calm down and parasympathetically downregulate, if you will, in their bodies so that they can feel safe enough to be open for sexuality. You know, women tend to need a lot more time to get their brains and their bodies to, you know, feel safe. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, I was just listening to, who was it? Sue Johnson yesterday mm -hmm. was talking about how women have such a complex relationship to arousal because their bodies can be physiologically aroused, but mentally they cannot at all be in the headspace of wanting to be sexual mm -hmm. because women are so much more primed and attuned to what's going on around them. And they're looking for safety cues first and foremost. So when a woman is really like got a lot going on and she's really focused on all these other things in her life, it makes it even more challenging for her brain to say, Yes, it's safe enough for you to let go of thinking about all of those things and be fully present here with your partner. So what I do with women who talk about that as being one of their primary issues is we look at everything else going on in her life and say, where do you have room to let go? Mm. How is, uh, if at all, is, is there a state of hypervigilance that is governing your need to be focused on all of these other things so much? So if I say that another way, it sounds like she's really kind of stuck in some more earlier primitive needs for safety and security. So are there things that she can do to feel okay in other parts of her life so she can let go of some of that stuff and mm -hmm. free up her time so she can focus more on, you know, being just in her own skin in a way that feels 
fun and leaves her available for being sexual. How would we, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Do you Mm -hmm. have an example of how someone could do that practically? So just say that they're really stressed out because they, you know, they have to take care of the kids when they get home. So yeah, it's a it's a great question. Like, what does that even practically mean, right? Right. So it means that you know, how can they practice self care in a way that really frees themselves up to have more bandwidth for sex? So it might mean saying to your partner, "I really miss being sexual," and one of the things that's getting in my way of feeling like I can be or want to be is I'm exhausted. You know, I work and then I come home and I take care of the kids. Where can you jump in so that you can take some of that off my plate? And then I can like just kind of breathe for a few minutes. Mm. So then I can show up and we can be sexual together. Yeah. Right? I love that. But it's easier for well, me and I know listeners to have an, a practical way mm-hmm. to sort of visualize that. So another question I had was, is it common for one partner in a relationship to have, to want to have more sex than other? You hear that, but I wanted to know coming from someone who is speaking to a lot of people about it. Is that actually real? Yes, of course. We, you know, human beings have such a diverse internal tapestry of needs and wants and pleasure availability, if you will. So I think it's not only normal, but it's to be expected because what's happening in your body might be very different than what's going on for your partner's body because Mm -hmm. you're two very different humans. (laughs) Yeah. So it's nearly impossible to think that you're going to be in sync all the time. And as we have lots of different things on our plates that we juggle, Mm -hmm. people often have competing needs. And that's just the reality of being in a relationship, whether they're sexual needs or physical needs or financial needs or emotional needs. So if there was a partner who, you know, someone who wanted to have sex more often and the other person was maybe getting upset about it because they don't want to as often, how do people or how do you coach people through finding a balance so there's no resentment and there's no feeling pressured or? Well, I think it's impossible to think that you're not going to resent your partner from time to time, but it's how quickly can you give that air and, and let it go. That is really important. You know, I think we spend a lot of time trying to avoid conflict in relationships instead of expecting conflict and then navigating it effectively together. So that's the first paradigmatic shift that I might offer that couple. It's, you guys are going to have disagreements, you're going to have fights, you're going to have competing needs, stop pretending like that's not an issue. And start working on how you're going to come together to negotiate when you're in those spaces. And once couples feel empowered to actually have those conversations, instead of feeling like, wow, I have different needs, and I can't say anything because I don't want to upset my partner and blah, blah, blah they go down that rabbit hole, that's a really difficult hole to get out of because then partners do become really resentful in the long term. And resentment turns into long festering silences or leaked out anger sideways. And that's dangerous for couples. Mm. So what I would say is let's talk about your competing needs and let's talk about how can you work together to give a little and take a little so that you guys can get closer to being on the same, the same plan around sex. You know, if, if you're not feeling as sexual, what are some of the reasons why? Are you tired? Are you not as happy in your own skin? Are you feeling pressured or like your partner only wants you for sex? Are you missing an emotional connection? Do you have a history of trauma? 
or any other medical issues or mental health conditions that might be taking up part of the bandwidth that your brain and body would otherwise be using for sexual receptivity. You know, we have to, we have to really peel back the layers and explore what's happening. I love that. Do you feel like couples who, you know, maybe in the beginning of their relationship didn't have a very open communication about sex, that that can grow over time, you know, that they can start talking about it? Because I, I almost feel like if you start out in your relationship and you don't talk about it, it's very easy for it to kind to of be, still, you know, to be a topic that you just avoid. And you yes. could be with someone for, you could be married for, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. and not even really talk about it. You would do it, but not actually, yeah, discuss it. Yeah, we have a really curious amount of shame around talking about sex in our culture. It's a very interesting sociological and anthropological you know, time or, or experience to note this because sex is everywhere mm-hmm. in our culture. It's everywhere, literally everywhere. But it is still such a, a taboo thing to talk about. And that infiltrates couples as well. And so to your point, yes, people can be in relationships for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and not talk about sex in any way that allows them to be productive with each other around the conversation. And so when they stop talking about it, or if they never start talking about it, it becomes something that lives in the unconscious underbelly of the relationship, and it develops a a whole persona of its own. And so when couples can give airtime to their sexual thoughts, ideas, concerns, fears, hopes, they open up a whole new wellspring of opportunities for connection, for pleasure, for expression, and to really feel whole within themselves. Because often what prevents us from talking about sex are old narratives that we have around it being something shameful or something scary. Do you recommend, I'm just trying to think about this, you know, is it, maybe it's just different for every couple, but when is the best time to talk about it because I feel like sometimes if you talk about it right after you have sex, might not be a good time. Before might not be a good time. You know, at breakfast maybe not a good time. Is there a better time where you can feel vulnerable but not necessarily too vulnerable in the moment what? to talk about it? Why not talk about it at breakfast? Okay. Well, yeah, I didn't know if that was a good time. Yeah, I, I think it's nice. Maybe breakfast is good because you can really be objective and you know step back a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I think here's what I would say. There's really, there aren't always great times to talk about sex and there aren't always really poor times to talk about it. It really depends on where you're both at and what kind of headspace you're in. So I probably wouldn't recommend sitting down to have a giant lengthy conversation about it right when you're in the throes of passion because yeah. you're the smart part of your brain and the, <laughs> and the more primitive, excited part of your brain, they're not talking to each other very effectively in those moments. So, you know, I would say sit down and carve out some time, you know, carve out some time together and say, Hey, I'd really love to chat with you about a few things that are on my mind. When's a good time for you? You know, when do you feel like you have the ability to sit down and spend an hour talking about sex or, you know, give your partner the opportunity to show up for you. You know, it's not a great idea when you're rushing around trying to take care of the kids, or if you're trying to you know, get a big work project done, but really, you know, let your partner know there's something important that you want to talk about and, 
make that request so that you can both come to the conversation as willingly as you're able to. I think it's nice to give someone a heads up too, because they can come mentally prepared or, you know, gather their thoughts instead of feeling maybe bombarded or I'm definitely someone who needs to have the conversation right now. And I've had to learn over time that (laughs) the other person doesn't necessarily want to have the conversation right now. Yeah. Um, So I love that. One thing that I definitely wanted to touch base on was porn in long-term relationships Mm -hmm. and whether what you've seen, can you see it have a positive or negative impact on a marriage or a long-term relationship? Is it something you recommend or can see that it doesn't necessarily go in a positive direction? What are your thoughts on porn in general and long-term relationships? All of the above. It really depends depends entirely on the people who are in the relationship to decide whether or not it's something that could be helpful or harmful to their sense of connection emotionally, sexually, or relationally. So for some people, porn can be a really lovely spark of creativity, of arousal, of fun, of connection. And for others, it can represent something that takes them down a path of feeling unimportant, dehumanized, uh, compulsive, objectified. And there really is no sort of one size fits all cookie cutter relationship to porn you know, even within two people's relationship over time. You know, their, their coupleship might have a different relationship to porn at year one than they do at year 10. So I, you know, I've worked with couples who go in both directions. For some people, porn is something they didn't start out watching together, talking about together, having any kind of relationship with together. And over time, they introduce it as a way to you know, give themselves a creative new twist in their sex lives. And it can work really well for people in that, in that way. And then for other people, it's something that maybe takes one or both of them down a path of compulsivity and it becomes uh, an unwanted third in their relationship, you know, something that actually competes instead of enhances and that can become problematic. The thing about porn that I think it's important to talk about here, there's a lot of debate around whether or not porn is okay. Mm-hmm. And I think mainstream porn can tend to have some more misogynistic uh, messaging in it. And so when people are watching it a lot, sometimes it can shift the way they relate to female partners mm-hmm. or it can make their arousal less responsive because what they're seeing in porn can be more fantastical than what might ever actually happen in their personal lives for so many reasons, right? Because we don't, so much gets edited out of the porn context. So it just is not a realistic depiction of sexuality. They also depict a lot of uh, female pleasure that really is just performance. And so when people's partners don't respond the same way, in reality, it can feel really difficult Mm -hmm. for male partners or female partners to really understand, well, why, why do I not sound like that? Or why does our sex life not sound or look the way we see it in porn? And so I think if it's the only educator for a couple, it can sometimes pose problems in that regard. But there are really ethical and holistic porn producers out there who have answered those kinds of questions with more realistic and body-inclusive pornography. So if just say a couple comes to you and says, 
you know, my wife likes to watch a lot of porn and it makes me feel inadequate. What, how do you, how do people work through that? Do they just figure out why it makes them feel that or should they cut that out or? It's, it's going to depend on, on each coupleship because, okay. you know, it might be a conversation between the two of them where they learn why it makes the partner feel uncomfortable or inadequate. And then once that information is there, they can come together around it. And then porn is no longer the enemy. And it could also be that, you know, in this case, the partner watching porn might say, wow, I had no idea that caused such a problem for you. And, and it's, I won't use it anymore. And so it can be, it can have resolution in, in that direction. But, you know, as a sex therapist, it's never my job, my intention, or my goal to tell people what their relationship to sexuality can be mm-hmm. or should be. Mm-hmm. Every single person's relationship to sex is different. And when it poses a problem in a relationship, it doesn't necessarily mean that their relationship to sex is bad or wrong, but it does mean that it's causing a problem in their relationship. So Mm -hmm. I think that's an important distinction to make because we often shame any kind of sexual behavior when objectively it may not be bad or wrong or not okay, but the problem is just that it's it's causing a ripple effect in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so that's what needs to be addressed. So many questions, a million questions, but that is so helpful. And I know anyone listening to this will definitely, you know, be able to learn something from that. So another question I did have for you was what advice do you give? Because really the main reason why I didn't want to chat was to talk about long-term relationships and, you know, how to kind of keep things going. So a really big question is what advice do you have to give to couples that are experiencing a lull in their sex life are really trying hard to sort of reignite that fire again. Oftentimes couples will come in because they're in that very predicament, right? They've been together for a period of time and the spark that was once there for them sexually has gotten a little quiet. And a lot of times couples will start to panic and they'll start to think, oh no, this means we're done. It means Mm -hmm. our feelings are changed and we're not compatible anymore. And really, that's infrequently the case. It does happen, but infrequently that's what's happening. When we're together for longer periods of time, we stop seeing each other as novel creatures. We habituate. We habituate to our partner, to our surroundings. It's why you can come into your apartment or your house and you don't notice the pile of laundry on the floor because it's there every day and you see it and it just becomes a part of the decoration now. Mm -hmm. And we do the same thing with partners, right? We start just seeing them every day. Mm -hmm. So it's normal for us to get a little bored because as humans, we like shiny. We like new things. We like new new shapes and sizes and colors. And so it's when couples get to that point, this is a really wonderful opportunity for them to kind of go back inward, get in touch with themselves again add different other textures to their lives, like maybe pick up a new hobby together or separately, go on a trip, introduce something new to the dynamic so that you can reorganize the way you see each other and kick up some more spark. And that usually can help people reignite those flames. You know, of course, there are other things to think about, like making sure there's not a medical condition or some other kind of survival-based competing need, like needing to work to pay the bills taking care of the kids, you know, those kinds of things. But when couples reinvest in and recommit to each other and to themselves, 
out of that can bloom a whole new level of eroticism and sexual desire and interest. I think there's um, only one benefit to having a husband who is in the military and flies away a lot, you know, is that we just That's don't, you? yeah, he, he's the Air Force pilot, so he's gone pretty mm-hmm. often, so mm-hmm. that is, you know, it's a, it's a benefit yeah. in, in our marriage, <laughs> in all departments, because not seeing someone, it, it really feels, I remember it feeling new for the first three years, just because it was, he was not around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the only benefit. <laughs> yeah. But I'll, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> I did, you, I just want to touch base on something you said when you were talking about the survival stuff, whether that's work or children, do those needs have to be covered first before people are really able to have the mental capacity to enjoy sex more in terms of like, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't want to make overgeneralizations about everyone because there yeah. are significant nuances for each mm-hmm. person and people can certainly have really exciting, pleasurable sex and also not have some of their other needs met. Okay. But oftentimes, yes, people do need to have sort of, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we need kind of food, water, shelter, security, safety in order to feel more often than not open to and receptive to sexuality and pleasure and creativity and spontaneity. I, I think about that just in, in general, how it's, it is sometimes hard to like enjoy certain aspects of life when you're just really trying to survive. So yeah, yeah. that touches that. Okay. This is another really practical one that I was asked to ask you. I put it out on Instagram okay. and my partner is a really someone who's like a morning person wants to have sex in the morning and I'm more of a night person, and this is like a constant issue. I'm just not turned on at night, and he's not turned on in the morning. How can couples practically address that? So is that, is that the case? The woman is turned on at night, and the man is turned on in the morning, or vice versa? Correct. Man, man in the morning, woman yeah. at night. That's pretty common. It is? Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. So men and women have different sort of biological patterns sometimes, not all the time, but, but often. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of one of those things we were talking about before. It's like, okay, you have different competing needs and different competing biological um, imperatives and availability. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make either person bad or good, right or wrong, but it's going to have to be something that they talk about and negotiate around and really think about, okay, here is our reality. It's not ideal. We'd love to be around at the same time, <laughs> yeah. but we're not. And so, you know, how do we negotiate together to talk about, all right, you know what? Sometimes at night we're going to play. And if it means, for example, you know, sometimes, um, and this is especially true with some of the men that I work with, they worry that if they try to be sexual at a time when they're not fully aroused, they might not be able to get an erection. Mm. And that is a reality, right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about what are they willing to do as a couple? What are they willing to do individually to play if an erection is not a part of the equation? Okay. And so I think it's a good, these kinds of conversations are great for couples to start getting creative about because we often also just think about sex as a penetrative experience. Right. But when you open up sexuality to include so many things that do not necessarily mean penetration, mm-hmm. then you have so many more options to get creative with when you have disparate arousal patterns like this. Right. That's right. Because you don't have to necessarily have sex 
you know, to enjoy being intimate together. Right. Um, and so maybe at nighttime, I don't know, there's some oral sex involved instead of sex or whatever it is. Yes. And yeah. Okay. Awesome. Love that. That answered a good question. I have a couple more for you. Okay. This is just something that I've read and I wanted to know if it's a myth. And I've always wanted to ask a sex therapist, but they said that sex is the first thing to fall apart in your marriage. And it's also one of the first things to like bring back your marriage. Is there any truth to that? You know, if you're struggling in your marriage, that your sex life is probably going to struggle too. And then once your sex life is, because I'm sure it has to do with vulnerability, but I just want to know what your thoughts were around that. Sex is a a place where people can often find and create a lot of connection for sure. So for many couples, if sex was something that was a conduit for that emotional connection, if the emotional connection starts to falter in other areas of their lives, they might feel less inclined to be sexual. Absolutely. And then if they start to address the emotional connection, they mm-hmm. might feel more aroused. Now for other people, it might you know, come in an opposite direction. Sex might be something that they use to try to create and maybe it's not really there anymore. And so then it sort of reinforces that emotional gap. So I haven't seen the research to suggest that it's the first thing to go and and the first thing to recharge. Yeah. But oftentimes I do think that, you know, partners, we are somatic creatures, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're not feeling okay in our mind or our heart, oftentimes it is evident in our bodies, right? We feel sluggish or we feel lethargic or we feel nauseous or we have some other kind of somatic symptom of anxiety, depression, and so on. So the same is true with our relational connections. When we feel really invigorated and inspired, somatically, we're much more available to people and to ourselves. And so when we get more um, disconnected, we tend to withdraw into mm-hmm. ourselves and it can create more of a disconnect between our mind and body, even though many people can be sexual in that disconnected or dissociated state. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not always so linear, but definitely there's a relationship between how couples engage sexually and what's happening between them relationally. I love that. Especially talking about stress in your body. Someone, someone mentioned, I read a book one time called Come As You Are. Oh yeah, it's a great book. Emily Nagoski, I'm going to butcher her name, Nagoski, Nagoski. But I think her and her sister just wrote a book that talks about that, about stress in your body and how it uh, relates. But anyway, a couple more things is how much does sex decline? And I know it's going to be different for every couple, but in general, you know, the first year, 10 year, 20 year, something that my girlfriends and I always ask is how often are you guys having sex? And I know it's going to be very different, but is there any commonality in any of that or just different for everybody? Well, I I think all of the above. Okay. (laughs) Right. It's so different for each person, each couple, but also there are some themes around what can be typical competitions in couples' lives with sex. So when people are really busy and at the peak of their professional um, development and prime, oftentimes, well, for some, that can cause an increase in their sexuality and their sexual arousal. For others, it might take away from the bandwidth they have sexually. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes when couples have children, you know, guess what? You have a kid, they need you. (laughs) Yeah. 
right? And it requires so much more energy from couples. And so it's normal over the span of people's lives and their development and certainly the trajectory of their relationships to have different periods where you're more sexual together and different periods where you're less sexual together. Thank you for that. I have one final question for you. And after that, I would love to know where the best place for people to get in contact with you. But if you could give women advice, you know, the key to a great sex life, if there is something that you could share that could help with that, what would you share? Can I share more than one thing? Because I yes, think there's a couple of, of things. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> First and foremost, I think women, in order to have a really satisfying sex life, Mm -hmm. have to be okay living in their own skin. Mm -hmm. This is a difficult task sometimes because there are a lot of expectations on women societally, relationally, you know, in our families, in our cultures about how to look, what to wear, what not to wear, what not to say, how to be. There are a lot of expectations that depending on which direction you're looking might sound differently in different Mm -hmm. spheres of a woman's life. So I think it's really important for women to really make peace with themselves about what is happening in their skin, in their minds, in their bodies, in their hearts, and to be integrated. And when they can have a really whole and integrated experience with their body, regardless of what the exterior looks like, that is going to set off a wellspring of erotic charge for them. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's really key, right? And then being able to feel confident and deserving of sexual pleasure is also important. And so that has some different arms to it. One, I think women are often given messages that it's not okay to be sexual. So a lot of women feel shame just even wanting to be sexual, wanting to experience pleasure or asking for something that they might think is outside the norm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that women are asking for what they want and teaching their partners how to do it and being exploratory together and knowing that it is absolutely okay to ask for pleasure and receive it. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I would say it is so, 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 so important. So important. Yeah. <laughs> if I haven't stressed that enough, so key to stop performing for other people. Stop. Mm-hmm. Stop faking orgasms. Stop saying something feels good if it doesn't. Stop saying yes when you want to say no. Stop performing. Because when you can emphatically say no, and I'm not saying do it in a mean way, but when you can say no, or that isn't working for me, or actually can you do this differently, you're actually opening yourself up then to a much more affirmative yes. And that's so necessary here, here, and definitely in all of your body. Like the cells in your body react differently when you are like, open and receptive. And when we are in a performative state because we don't want to hurt our partner's feelings or Mm -hmm. we don't think it's okay to want something different, that creates an implicit blockage in our bodies and that we tend to shut down. And so a lot of women will disconnect from their sexuality and live an entire life having fake orgasms, not being willing to teach their partner what they want Mm -hmm. and dying a slow sexual death inside. Mic drop. I was just, <laughs> it's so true though. It is you so know, true. I mean, where else in life is it just considered normal to like fake your, ha- you know what I mean? I guess people fake that they're happy. That's a big thing, you know, in society, mm-hmm. you fake that. But 
I, I, I don't know a single girlfriend who's never faked an orgasm. Totally. Either to get it over with or, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make their partner feel better. But you're right. Because I mean, the more honest you are, the better it is for you because then they're going to figure out what's actually working for you and what actually feels good. Because as of right now, you know, you're kind of misguiding too. Totally. Totally. And I think that's the part. It's like, I, I know a lot of women don't want to hurt their partner's feelings. And a lot of men have, have really sort of defined their confidence by their ability to give their female partners an orgasm. And it's just such, it, it's just such a shit show, honestly, when everybody participates in that, because yeah. we're, we're sort of fostering this fragile ego, you know, made out of sticks and glass. And then over here, we're depriving ourselves of pleasure. Nobody's happy. Yeah. Nobody's happy with that, right? Yeah. And that's not effective in the long term. And all we're doing is driving the wedge of relational interaction and um, connection further and further apart. I love that. I am so excited for people to hear this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to follow your practice, where is the best place to find you? Where do you want people to go? I appreciate you asking. They can check us out online at modernintimacy.com. This new website is going to be really great. We've got all different kinds of expert written content. We've got lots of videos that are being created, online workshops. um, And of course, if people want to schedule consultations with myself or any of my staff or any of the other clinicians and providers that are writing for Modern Intimacy, they're welcome to do that there. On Instagram, they can follow us at The Modern Intimacy and reach out with questions, shoot us DMs. We do a lot of interactive lives and we're happy to help people talk about sex in a place that is safe, inclusive, and open so they can get information that they trust about these topics. Thank you so much. I, I love your vibe. You just make me feel so calm. And oh. I think that you know, it it is a scary topic for some people. And I think them visiting modern intimacy, it feels like a safe place. And I think that's really important for these kind of things to feel like it's one good information that you can trust, but in a place that is non-judgmental. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. All right. Um, Have a good Sunday. You too. Thanks. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Did you find value in this episode? I would really appreciate it if you would rank and review it on Apple Podcasts as it helps so much with ranking and visibility. And do you know someone who needs to listen to this episode? Simply click on the episode on whatever app you're on and click the share button and text, email, or share it on social media with them. Wherever you are in the world right now, I'm sending you all of my love and hope that you're happy, healthy, and well. Much love, Estelle May.